0: Let's get started. Well, you've probably heard of the nature versus nurture argument before, right? That's one of the essential questions that psychologists have argued for decades. The basic question is, is our behavior a product of inherited characteristics like our genes? That's called our nature. Or is our behavior a product of acquired characteristics like learned behaviors that we get from our family or from our culture? That's nurture. Of course, a logical conclusion would be that it's not just nature or just nurture. It's probably a blend of both of these things. We're probably a result of our genes and our environment. Sure, our genetic makeup is incredibly important because our genes encode things like enzymes, receptors, hormones that make our bodies run, that make our brains work, but the environment affects us in very tremendous ways, too. I think the study of how our innate mental structures are affected by our environmental exposures, experiences, I think that's what they call cognitive psychology. Today I want to tell you about this 80-year-old research project that's been going on in Africa, and how the findings of this study truly impact all of us. One of the ways that this nature versus nurture argument gets complicated is what happens during fetal development. Although the way a fetus develops during gestation is largely encoded by the fetal genome itself, the gestational environment that the fetus experiences, which comes largely through her mother, that's also incredibly important and that's what this eighty-year-old research project is about. So this eighty-year-old project has been going on in the Gambia, which is a relatively small country in West Africa right next door to Senegal. The Gambia is located on the cusp of the Sahara Desert and so the people who live there have to deal with their very seasonal food supply. The summertime is their rainy season, and it's also called the hungry season. So the summertime in the Gambium, which is their rainy season, that's called the hungry season because by that time, last year's agricultural harvests are about depleted. And it's just planting time at that time of the year, so next season's harvest is not yet ready. So it's during this rainy season that not only do people not have enough to eat, but they're also expending a lot of energy in the fields, preparing the soil, planting the seeds, weeding, cultivating, etc. So that's the situation that researchers from the United Kingdom chose to study when they wanted to explore the question of how diet affects health during fetal development. This group published a very important article about this, back in 1997. In that article, they reported that people born during the hungry season, that's the summer when it's raining a lot, in the Gambia, they were much more likely to die early compared to those people who were born during the time of the year when food was plentiful. It was by a factor of 10, in fact. So a person born during the rainy season was 10 times more likely to die prematurely than someone born during the dry season when food was more plentiful. So people born during the rainy season have lower birth weights, but they also tend to live shorter lives, even though you're talking years later. That's kind of bizarre when you think about it. The amount of food that a pregnant woman eats affects the lifespan of her offspring? What's the biochemistry of that? There was a researcher back in 2003 who studied a specific example of this, but it was in mice In mice, this researcher discovered that changing the mother's diet during pregnancy influenced the color of the coat, the fur, of the newborn mouse. The researcher determined that the mechanism for this change in the color of the offspring due to the diet of the mother was due to DNA methylation of the fetal DNA. This was a pretty crazy idea back in 2003. We've talked about DNA methylation and epigenetics on this show in the past. DNA methylation is basically a modification of our DNA. It's basically attaching of a a carbon, a CH3, to our DNA in such a way that it silences the DNA. So if a gene that encodes an enzyme is methylated, that enzyme is not really going to get synthesized because it's blocked at the DNA level by this methyl group addition. So DNA methylation shuts down our ability to express genes and that can greatly affect the way our body functions. For instance, the color of these mouse pups' fur. So this mouse coloration effect that the nutritional status of the pregnant mother affected the coloration of the fur of the offspring, it affects the color of the entire body of the newborn mouse and it lasts the lifetime of that mouse. This researcher doing all this research with epigenetics of mouse coloration, he became interested in how this type of thing might be happening in humans rather than just mice. He's currently at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas, and what he did was he started a collaboration with that British group that was doing their research in the Gambia. They started this collaboration back in the 1990s. They took blood samples from 25 Gambian children that were born either during the rainy season, don't forget that's the food deprived season, or during the dry season when food would have been more plentiful. If a child was born during the rainy season their mother was probably food challenged and a child born during the dry season probably had a mother who was better fed when she was pregnant they looked at five different regions of the human genome that they suspected could have become methylated during fetal development. And sure enough, those five regions, those five segments of our chromosomes, were more methylated in the children who were born during the low food period, the the rainy season. So that means that those five segments contained genes that were more likely to be silenced. And I should tell you that they did take into account the timing of all this. They took into account the timing of conception and the timing of the relative food abundance. They also wanted to make sure that there weren't any other interfering environmental factors because, you know, if you're comparing children born in the summer versus the winter, what about the amount of rain or the temperature or the amount of sunlight or day length? They took all that into account and they still concluded that it was the actual mother's nutritional status during pregnancy that correlated with the children's DNA methylation rather than some environmental factor. They determined this by looking at the mother's level of specific biomarkers in their blood. They didn't just rely on interviews with the mother's or subjective measures of hunger. They actually measured the amount of hunger that the mother's body was experiencing. Then the next logical question that the researchers had was, what are these specific genes doing in our body? What is their normal function in our body? Well, One of them is a tumor suppressor gene. Tumor suppressor genes protect us from developing cancers. This tumor suppressor gene got silenced in the people born during the rainy, low-food period. Another one of these genes that got methylated is involved in regulating our BMI, our body mass index, which is how much we weigh. This latest research article was published in the July 11, 2018 issue of Science Advances, And in that paper, these researchers identify 687 different genes that act the same way as this tumor suppressor and the BMI genes were. They were all methylated, which means they were silenced. And they're still trying to figure out what each of these 687 different genes are actually doing in our body and why at least some of them are associated with early death. They did look at what part of these genes tended to be methylated and discovered that it was right around the start site for many of these genes. This is where transcription begins and also even in front of that which if you're a molecular biologist is known as the promoter region, the enhancer region. That's the part of the gene that's really controlling when transcription occurs, how much transcription occurs. That's the regulatory region of the gene. They did observe that the methylation patterns did have some variation depending on which person you were talking about. So this epigenetic effect of the mother to the fetus might be individualized. So the bottom line from this research is that it's not just a question of nature versus nurture. It's not a question of our DNA versus what happens to us during our lives, because this is an example of how the environment influences the very potential of our DNA to make us what we are. It's a hybrid between this concept of nature or nurture. It's both. It's epigenetics.
1: Scott here. I was reading in the December issue of Physics Today an interesting article concerning the nuclear energy industry here in the U.S. The gist of the article was that there may be a decline in the number of commercial nuclear power plants and that over the next 15 to 20 years all such plants in the U.S. may be shut down. Seven reactors have been closed in the last five years with one more scheduled for next year. Currently, in the U.S., there are 98 reactors providing close to 20% of the nation's electricity, which translates to about half of the carbon free power generated here. And carbon free power is the hook used by the nuclear energy proponents. A recent report, created by various U.S. scientific departments, has indicated that not only is climate change real, it is happening now. Its effects on the agricultural sector of the U.S. alone may cost billions of dollars by the middle of the century, just two decades from now. As a state that depends on agriculture, this is a big deal. So the generation of energy via carbon-free sources is important. For a better idea about what is meant by carbon-free power and how it applies here in Kentucky, I visited the National Geographic's website that deals with this topic. Its URL is www.nationalgeographic.com forward slash climate change forward slash carbon free power grid. Now National Geographic is all one word, but climate change and carbon free power grid each have dashes between the individual words. Or you could simply use Google as I did to find the site. It allows you to choose your state and then provides a possible energy mix of carbon-free sources, and it provides information on different power sources and how they may work together. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, as of 2017, Kentucky is the fifth largest coal producer and fifth in the nation in estimated recoverable reserves. 79% of Kentucky's net electricity generation is coal-fired fourth largest share in the country, and 13% of Kentucky's net generation was from natural gas. What this means is that Kentucky does contribute to the current issue of climate change, which most scientists agree is due more to human activity than some natural process or processes. Also, according to the EIA site, we do have about 37% of all the new hydroelectricity-generating capacity which generates about 90% of our renewable carbon-free energy. Unfortunately, this contribution is just a drop in the bucket compared to the contributions from carbon-produced sources of energy. But according to the article on the National Geographic site, the mix of carbon-free energy in our state could come from 79% solar plants, which would replace coal's contribution completely, They use photovoltaic cells to convert sunlight to electric energy, with the rest coming from residential commercial government rooftops, concentrated solar plants, and the hydroelectric power we already use, along with wind farms. Some of the pluses from this mix would include things like a reduction of overall energy demand. This reduction in demand added to reduced health care costs due to a cleaner environment, could result in a substantial average per-person annual cost savings of thousands of dollars. And land usage, from wind farms for example, would be about 1.2% of the land in the state. This land could double as ordinary farmland, supporting farmers in the state. As one with degrees in physics, I have been more than aware of nuclear and other power providers for quite some time. Here in Kentucky and the states near us, Coal was and still is the primary source of electrical energy. As one born and raised here, I knew and still know that speaking against coal is not necessarily a good thing. In any case, there wasn't any mention on the National Geographic site about the contribution by nuclear power, which might be a good thing based on the Physics Today article. The basic premise of a nuclear power plant is pretty much the same as that of a coal-powered plant or gas power plant, generate heat that is used to create steam. The steam is then used to turn rotors on generators, moving coils of wire through strong magnetic fields to produce electricity. It is a bit more complicated in details, but the idea is the same. Move a coil of wire through a magnetic field or move a magnetic field past coils of wire and you can generate electric current. Heat produced steam by any means provides the pressure to create that motion. But what are the waste products? In the case of coal and gas, some of that is the emission of greenhouse gases that get vented to the atmosphere. There is also the remnant of the burning process, especially in coal-fired plants. This remnant must be stored somewhere. The same is true with nuclear plants. In this case, the remnant is radioactive waste, some of which will stay radioactive for very long periods of time. This requires stable places to store that material where ruptures by things like earthquakes or storm damage can be minimized. And just like the slag heaps created in the coal burning process, nobody wants nuclear waste stored in their backyard. But at least you have a reduction of carbon emission. Proponents of nuclear blame regulators in the wholesale power markets for failing to give credit to nuclear generators for the social benefits of their carbon-free energy production. Credit that is given to wind turbine operators, for example. They also blame the falling prices of natural gas. For those of you that might be coal advocates, this cheap natural gas is what is causing issues with coal power plants being shuttered, not the regulations on the industry claimed by some in a particular political party. Nuclear energy proponents also voice concerns from a national security standpoint. The implications is that with no jobs in the nuclear industry because of the decline in plants, there might be less incentive for people joining the Navy, for example, to train for nuclear duty on ships or submarines because there will be no jobs to go to when their enlistment is up. But there are others, who are not big advocates of nuclear power, that say it is possible to find ways to keep the current nuclear fleet operational by taxing carbon dioxide emissions. Finally, nuclear energy proponents argue with a reduction of power plants, the US will lose its influence in the world when it comes to implementing policies on nuclear safety, security, and the nonproliferation of nuclear technology. This latter might be considered important with countries like Iran and North Korea trying to develop that type of technology. As for myself, I have viewed nuclear as one bridge to move us from a carbon-produced energy country to one that does rely more heavily on carbon-free energy production. Of course, in my mind, there is a carbon-free energy production process that is not placed in the mix of energy production. That would be nuclear fusion, the same process that powers the stars. To date, that has been the holy grail of energy production. As one that has always been interested in astronomy, even while I was studying physics for my degrees, I have, as other physicists, dreamed of the day when nuclear fusion, the energy source of the stars, could be the replacement for nuclear fission. Nuclear fusion has the advantage of a waste product that, if captured, may have commercial usage, helium. And the fuel is all around us in the form of hydrogen, a plentiful supply of which can be found in water and other sources. Work continues in the development of sustainable nuclear fusion, which might then evolve into a viable commercial product. But the progress has been slow, possibly too slow to make an immediate impact on such problems as climate change and the need to move away from carbon-based energy production to carbon-free energy production. This transition is necessary, perhaps in our lifetime.
0: listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science at WFMP 106.5 here in Louisville, Kentucky. of that lovely music by De Yankee. It's called Cosmopolitan Margarita Bellini. I want to talk about something a little more serious now. Did you know that about 200 people per year are killed by an animal here in the United States? What animals do you think are the most dangerous here in the United States? Are we getting mauled by bears or eaten by sharks or attacked by wolves or bitten by snakes? Nope. Every seven years, Stanford University has been issuing a report on what animals are causing mortality in the U.S. First, the good news, animal-related mortalities has not gone up in recent history. But the bad news is there are a lot of dangerous critters out there. The number one type of animal responsible for human deaths in the United States are farm animals. We're talking cows and horses causing various farm accidents. Number two are stinging insects, like bees and hornets and wasps. And then the third leading cause of death by an animal are dogs, especially dogs attacking children. Now, deaths due to stings, like bees and wasps, are actually on the rise in the last seven years. I think that's due to the rise in Africanized bees. And it's sort of ironic about this rise in death due to stinging insects, because there is an effective treatment for it. It's the epinephrine injector. They often call it the EpiPen. They're very readily available. The problem with the EpiPen is they're very expensive. So in spite of the Hollywood movies you might be watching, the bottom line is don't be so afraid of bears and sharks and wolves and snakes. The greatest hazard to you are really the more common animals you see around. So be careful out there and treat them with respect. Hey Dave here. Did you know that Earth had another asteroid fly by recently? It was Saturday, December 22, 2018. This mile-wide rock whizzed by us at about 14,000 miles an hour and at a distance of about 1.8 million miles away. That's about seven times the distance between the Earth and the Moon. This asteroid was first discovered in 2003 and it orbits the Sun between Venus and Earth, but it's kind of in a lopsided fashion, so it only comes relatively close to Earth about once every three years. Now because this asteroid zipped by the Earth on December 22nd of this year, it's often referred to as the Holiday Asteroid. And the Holiday Asteroid is one of some 18,000 different near-Earth objects, NEOs, That occasionally roam by our planet. We really don't have to worry about these asteroids that are called near-Earth objects. We don't really have to worry that much about them hitting Earth. It's estimated that the Earth only gets hit by an asteroid like this about once every million years. Now what's really newsworthy about the holiday asteroid is that they got really good photos of it this time the photos were made using radio antennas. This is basically sending radio signals from earth towards the asteroid and then they detect the radio signal coming back to earth as it's reflected off the rock and then they could take that information and piece together the reflecting signals and put together an image. If you want to see the images yourself just do an internet search for holiday asteroid or you could even look for the Christmas asteroid. Now the official name of the holiday asteroid is 2003 SD-220, 2003 SD-220 if you want to do a search for that. This mile-long rock actually looks like a sweet potato. It's long and thin. One person described it as looking like the exposed portion of a hippopotamus wading through a river. That's actually a pretty good description. It does look like a hippopotamus in water. Now, NASA took these photos using an ingenious method that involved three different radio telescopes here on Earth. They used two different telescopes to send the radio waves towards the asteroid. One of their telescopes was in the Mojave Desert in California. It's called the Goldstone Observatory. And the other radio telescope was in Puerto Rico. It's called the Arecibo Observatory. And you might have seen the Arecibo Observatory if you saw Carl Sagan's movie, called Contact, the one that had Jodie Foster. It's also featured in the James Bond movie called GoldenEye. Eye. Anyway, these two observatories sent out the radio waves towards the holiday asteroid, and then once the waves reflected back to Earth, a third observatory picked up that signal. It was the Green Bank Telescope that's in West Virginia. That's where the signal was received. It turns out that you actually get a much better image when the receiving telescope is different than the one that's sending out the radio waves. It get kind of a stereotopic effect, I guess. Now this asteroid rotates pretty slowly, about eleven days it takes for it to do a complete rotation. So the asteroid's not moving very much, which means they got a very crisp image. You can see hills and valleys on the rock, and you can see impact craters. So, for instance, they were able to estimate one ridge at 340 feet tall. They just have never gotten such detailed photographs of an asteroid before. We're lucky to have gotten such good, crisp images of this asteroid, because the next time the asteroid comes by, it'll be twice as far away as it is now. So do yourself a favor. Get on a computer, do an internet search for the holiday asteroid or the Christmas asteroid, or if you really want to be technical, 2003 SD220, and have a look at this asteroid that looks like a hippopotamus. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk: The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk two words on Facebook. You can also email us at BenchTalkRadio at gmail.com. That's one word. BenchTalkRadio at gmail.com Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville Broadcast Area... You can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.